Now we're good. <laughs> Welcome back and hello to everyone who came. Um, so now when can you die breaking the news? When you remember a past event, you're actually remembering the last time you remembered and not the event itself. Keshra Beras will explain this in our following session to us a bit further. A very interesting and creative soul born in Afghanistan. An author and artist also born 60, 70 years after the original Brexit, that's how he called it, when Afghanistan became free from the United Kingdom back in 1919. So welcome, Kesha. We're very interested. A little clap your hand for Kesha Beros. Thank you. So good morning. Um, There will be a surprise twist uh, at the end of the talk, so please go ahead and eagerly anticipate it. Um, and there will also be time for questions if you have any, so please write them down as soon as you have them in your mind. Um, so this is what I remember. There is a small living room in the middle of Germany, cheaply furnished. There is a couch and a sofa, both facing the television set. In front of the seating area, there is a wooden table. It's made out of chipboards, and there are magazines on top. Between the furniture and the TV, there is a small square carpet. Probably my favorite place in our small apartment, where my parents, my brother, and myself used to live. I am 15 years young, lying on that carpet, my arms supporting my head, my legs moving back and forth as if I was diving. And I am wondering, Who broke the television? Because no matter how often I would switch the channel, those damn towers burning. Now, this is what I remember as well. I am on a train in New York City. It's 11.41 a.m., March 4, 2014, a Tuesday, on my way back home. I am almost alone. There is only one other passenger sitting in front of me and maybe one or two friends to my side. I remember my phone buzzing, and as I take a look, this is what I see. In the province of Shapwa, a US drone fired missiles at a car, killing two people. And when I look up from my phone, this is what I see. And right in that moment, I felt the absurdity of this, and I wanted to engage with the news that I just got. A few months earlier, when I arrived in New York, everyone was talking about where they were when they heard that Kennedy died. It was November 22, 1963, and people in talk shows and in the radio would tell stories about that day, how they would scramble around the radio and listen to the breaking news, how they would be on the phone and someone would tell them, and how they all started to cry, and how some sort of collective memory emerged where the information manifested itself in time, and place and created a cultural moment that was so strong that it is being remembered to this day. I think something similar happened with most of us in this room when 9-11 happened. We all remember, we did not have a choice. And that's probably true for most of the big bad moments in our lives. A person dying, someone becoming ill, someone leaving us. And outside these moments, I found that remembering is hard. It really is. We forget stuff all the time, despite our best intentions. And it kind of makes me angry to feel so passive 
in this actively intellectual engagement. So I decided to do something about that when I got this push notification in a train in New York. I wanted to engage with it because up until then the only thing I was doing in a performative act was swiping the message away. So I had to ask myself, why am I allowing this application to send me these push notifications when I ignore them anyway? By not contextualizing the information and associating a time and place with it, I was complicit in this great act of forgetting. And I get it, it's not a president dying, it's not a symbol being attacked, it's not someone famous, it's no one close to us culturally or geographically. These drone strikes, tragically, are not as earth-shattering in their impact as 9-11. And that's something we as a society need to think about for the very simple reason that people in dubious covert operations are being killed. But still, I wanted to be able to choose remembering these deaths very consciously. I wanted to pull them into my everyday life. So this is what I started to create. These are very simple square collages. The majority of each item is covered by the screenshot of my phone. The photograph of where I was is quite small in comparison, almost like someone left the door ajar just a little bit. Here you can see an American flag, an almost used up roll of toilet paper, some blankets, an open door, and sometimes me creating a collage of that open door when another attack happened just at that moment. Uh, I was creating all these collages on my phone, that's why I would sometimes get these push notifications while I was doing something else. So essentially two images are juxtaposed. And I repeated the simple process of adjoining two images every time I got a push notification from an application called Metadata, created by Josh Bagley, who is a data artist and research editor at The Intercept. At the core of the application is a database from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in London, who is tracking US drone strikes and other covert actions in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Somalia. The data is fully and freely available under a CC BY and CND 3.0 license to anyone who's interested using them for their own work. So I installed the application and set up the push notifications, and every time the Bureau updated its database, my phone would let me know. And after creating a collage, I would post it to a newly set Tumblr at whenkennedydied.tumblr.com, as well as to my Facebook and Instagram feeds. The idea was to disrupt the news feed, I don't know, with actual news, but present it in a way that would get people interested because they wouldn't immediately get what I was doing. The tagline each and every time simply read, Everyone, everybody knows where they were when they heard that Kennedy died. I was considering that no one was really talking about these drone strikes, essentially breaking the news to my friends. And I seemed to shout, Kennedy died, why aren't we all crying? And it is strange, people break the news to us almost every day. And to be honest, I consider it an act of aggression. 
Um, it takes over the TV screens with flashy effects, as you can see in these examples. It disturbs the regular program and whatever you're doing at that moment, essentially nullifying the escapist moment. It's written in large letters on front pages, and our phones are constantly buzzing because the breaking news is pushed directly into our pockets and taking over our home screens. It's like someone can't wait to tell you your grandmother died, pushing people aside and screaming it in your face and kind of enjoying it, actually. And we allow this to happen because we want to be in the know. Do you want us to send you push notifications whenever there is breaking news? And we emphatically say, yes, of course. And every time your phone buzzes, you are excited to find out what horrible disaster happened. And most of the time, you'll be disappointed because it's just some news about soccer. Thus, instead of breaking the news to us, the news kind of breaks. Let me try to explain. The very concept of breaking news is weirdly tautological, because what makes breaking news different from news? Breaking news is always true, and thus tautological, because it wouldn't be news otherwise. News is constantly breaking. That's what makes it news in the first place. Breaking news, then, is not so much about the breaking part, but about an editorial decision that certain news is worth more of your attention than others. The New York Times, for example, calls them urgent and important stories, which is fine because that's exactly why I am a subscriber of the Times. I want them to be the gatekeepers that they are supposed to be. I want them to tell me what is going on and what is important, and still, during the entire length of my Kennedy project, around one and a half years, I may have gotten one or two notifications concerning covert US drone strikes from the New York Times. Seeing the data and seeing how much havoc these, havoc these attacks actually wreck, I feel badly informed. Since the Bureau began recording the data on drone strikes, between 6,263 and 9,049 uh, people were killed and between 736 and 1,394 were civilians. Um, these numbers vary that much because some of these deaths are not confirmed um, through multiple sources. And I consider this news, and when I started the project, I wanted to create for myself the same kind of impact that Kennedy's assassination had or the terrorist attacks on 9-11 had on my memory. And with technology and algorithms being where they are right now, it's only logical to relieve the old school gatekeepers from their duties of editorializing the content they deem to be important or to be breaking news. And that's good because we can all make our own decisions now. And it's bad because we have to make our own decisions now. So there are content curators all over the place, personalized aggregators. What is it that you are interested in? What is relevant to you? What makes you tick? And it very well may be that you choose only news from your favorite sports club to be relevant to you and thus choose to opt out from whatever you consider to be superfluous information. So personalization then would mean that the 15 years old boy lying on that carpet somewhere in the middle of Germany and watching the television would never get to see those towers burning because, you know, when I was 15, I was more interested in cartoons and I, was and I would have probably let the system know about that. So I stopped the Kennedy project when Apple threw metadata out of the App Store due to excessively crude or objectionable content. Think about this. 
It's as if the New York Times would have to leave the App Store because of the very same reason. They report on atrocities that are even worse than drone strikes. And also note that it is not explained what makes the content so excessively crude or objectionable. There are no images of dead bodies. There is, a li there is little more than just the very short, almost tweet-sized tweet news statements that you saw earlier. So apparently Cupertino deems information on covert US operations objectionable and not something that especially the American public has a right to know about. So to me, it was an unfortunate but also very fitting end to a project that I worked on for one and a half years and where in that time I created around 83 collages. I learned that memory artists, people who are able to remember hundreds of items in a certain order and recite them with ease, create virtual rooms in their heads. To remember those items, they put them in a narrative within that space, and then they just walk the room. I remember these strikes in the same way, but instead of me being the one triggering the narrative, I am triggered by the locations I captured. So whenever I revisit one of these places, by accident or on purpose, I do actually remember. Of course, it's not very detailed how many people died that day, where exactly did the attack happen, I really don't know. But because it's a flawed memory, but it's a memory nevertheless. And I wanted to continue this engagement with drone strikes as I grew more and more interested in not only the moral or philosophical aspects, but also in the technical ones. So I followed up the project with a piece that for me works as a discussion of the combination of the mechanics of a drone and the moral implications that they bring. So naturally, I created postcards. Here you can see a map image of the location of a drone strike juxtaposed with a map view of the location the postcard is addressed to. Friends who got one of these told me that there is something eerie about getting one of those in your mailbox something threatening. The piece is called Wish You Were Here because I want people to ask who is actually speaking, who is wishing whom to be where, and without getting too much into detail and interpreting my own work, which is always a bad idea, and I apologize for having done exactly that for the last 15 minutes, I would like to draw your attention to what and how much you can actually see. The upper map always looks some sort of tapestry, Colors kind of running into each other. There is a feeling of anonymity and replaceability. While the lower map is much more detailed, you can see streets, you can identify single trees, sometimes even cars or people. You can walk those streets on your computer or your smartphone. And this lower map is a much better target than the upper one because the information is much better. Of course, a drone live feed is different, but that's not why I'm pointing this out. This information is freely available. I googled it within seconds. Drone warfare is asymmetrical. And the height of this asymmetry can be clearly seen metaphorically in a way by just looking at this collages. How arrogant and scornful and mocking to have this information freely available and still to live in safety. Anyone who could just walk our streets in Google, fly over our cities in Apple Maps in 3D, and you can even enter some buildings and choose which floor you want to see. It's like we are asking for it because we know the situation is so asymmetrical, so imbalanced, 
that we can actually be pretty sure that nothing is going to happen to us. I want to end this talk with part three of, I guess, the Drone Trilogy. Uh, when I was a child, my parents would ask me to dance at dinner parties. They would put Afghan music on and I would move clumsily to it, merely copying what moves I had learned from watching the grown-ups. And I remember them looking at me, taking aim, staring, clapping, words of encouragement, but also laughter, mocking maybe, um, to what is uh, mocking to a child's ear. And at times it was a deeply disturbing situation as I couldn't understand what it was that people wanted from me. Their gazes upon my body felt too private for me to actually want to share it in the form of dance moves. And I know that nobody wanted to do me harm, but to me it's similar to someone who accidentally drives over your foot. He may not, want, he may not have wanted to do that, but it still hurts. So I almost instantly thought about this when I heard about the congressional hearing in the United States on drone strikes where a child was testifying about how those unmanned aircrafts changed his life. I no longer love blue skies. In fact, I prefer gray skies. Drones do not fly when the skies are gray. And the connection to my dancing at dinner parties is obvious to me, though it may be obscure to you. Taking this uncomfortable dance and the footage that my parents shot over the years and putting the sinister, dark, and rhythmic noise of a drone hovering in the background, I no longer love blue skies, as the piece is titled, brings these attacks very close to my personal home. The setup is as follows, uh, so please enjoy this uh, superb illustration. Um, as you can see, uh, there is a box, and on top of the box there is a very old um, television. And for the speakers, in the, upper, in the upper part of the image, I'm utilizing those that are being used in the public space for announcements. They have a dystopian kind of vibe to them, as if they were surveilling you. And I, for one, always feel uncomfortable when I see one of these things, but, and here comes the surprise twist, uh, or maybe not even a twist, it's always disappointing uh, when a twist is announced beforehand. Uh, what those speakers will do as well is that they will be putting out those push notifications that I had used for when Kennedy died, and thus close the cycle and break the news once again. Uh, thank you.